Beloved, I invite you to open your Bible with me to Proverbs 22. In a few minutes, we're going to have the privilege as a church of committing our love and support to one of our families, and they are in turn going to have the privilege of committing their love and support to someone they already love and support. Um, And with that happening, and with next week being Father's Day and and me not being here for that, um, I wanted to talk from Proverbs 22 a little bit about family and how we glorify God in it. Let's look at verses 5 and 6, and it would be helpful if I turned there. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Let's pray one more time. Father, you have ordained marriage and family to be the fundamental relationships for us. For those whom you have made in your image... And we thank you because we don't have to look hard to find out how you want us to live in the midst of these relationships. In families, you teach us about the things that we saw we need to be praying for and living out last week. Love, a right theology, and obedient living. You teach us that in the midst of family. And you have clearly revealed in your word how husbands and wives and fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and more are to live So over the next few minutes, Father, we ask, we pray that your spirit might overwhelm us and that you might use your word to show us how to glorify your son. We ask this in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen. Um, Later this summer, the Olympics are going to be held in Brazil. I love the Olympics. Um, if you take almost any country and dress it in, or any sport, and dress it in the flag, I almost certainly will become more interested in it, except for rhythmic gymnastics. I still don't understand rhythmic gymnastics or synchronized swimming. <laughs> but handball, I love to watch Olympic handball for some reason. Um, I start to care about handball. Um, anyway, the Olympics are coming up, and... It always reminds me of an opportunity that I had 20 years ago to go. In 1996, the Olympics were held in Atlanta, and I lived in Charlotte, and it was just a short drive down. But sadly, but understandably, the thing that most people remember about those Olympic Games is the bombing in Centennial Park. I think it was July, the night of July 26th, and I remember that because I arrived the morning after. I arrived in Atlanta just a few hours after and found out on the subway train, the the MARTA, what had happened. And it made for a very interesting day, a day I'll never forget. But those Olympics came to my mind this week because there was another noteworthy part of those games that was brought to my memory by the death of Muhammad Ali. Um, 1960 boxing gold medalist three-time heavyweight champion of the world and the most famous athlete ever, period. Um, Whether you liked him or not, 
I have a feeling if I had been living during that time, I probably would have rooted for the guys he was fighting. But whether you liked him or not, whether you agreed with him or not, there is no disputing the fact that he was a cultural icon. When you think about the most important cultural figures of the late 20th century, you can't have that discussion without him. And he lit the torch for those Olympic Games. That's why I bring him up now. He lit the torch for those Olympics, and it was a big surprise when he did because nobody expected him to be the one to do it. It's always a big honor, the one who lights the last one, the big one. And no one expected him because it was well known of his Parkinson's disease and by that time. and uh, So it was a very big deal, and if you saw that, you probably remember it. It was very much talked about. He lit the torch, but he didn't ignite the flame. He actually, all he did was hold a small torch that was lit by somebody else that was carrying a torch of their own. It was a swimmer by the name of Amy Van Dyken. And she had had her torch lit by somebody else who had had his torch lit by somebody else, and so on. All told, 12,467 people over the course of almost three months carried the torch culminating with Ali at the conclusion of that ceremony. And I'm not the best at illustrations, and I'm not the best at metaphors, but it strikes me that from the torch's initial lighting to its being set ablaze in the Olympic Stadium is at least a decent metaphor for what it means to be a Christian disciple. And I, I say that because your Christian discipleship did not start with you, And unless the Lord comes back, it should not end with you. You don't know if it will end with you, but while it's yours, you are to run with it. All the while being prepared to hand it off to whoever comes next. This is what Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy 2.2 when he writes, The things that you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There are Four generations of Christian discipleship in that verse. And I'm always just blown away by that because it shows our need as Christians to always be looking forward, always to be looking and taking care of who comes next. And if that's true in the church, it's certainly true in the family. And Solomon writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in verse 5 here, "...thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse." He who guards himself will be far from them. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Thorns and snares. No one likes to walk through thorns and snares. I've got some thorns growing in the wooded area in my backyard that surrounds my backyard. Over to the side, my daughters call that the poison woods. Um, and there are thorns and all the and, and and I've been meaning to cut some of it back because some of it stretches into the path where I mow the grass, but I haven't done that yet. So every time I mow the grass, it's kind of entertaining when I get to that part because I slow down and I pull the thorn and I put it over my side, or my or I you know kind of duck and then I move on. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't work so well. It looks kind of ridiculous because nobody wants to walk through thorns and snares and yet thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse so who are the perverse who are the perverse that 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 solomon is talking about here where the word in hebrew literally means crooked 
And the bottom line, beloved, is there is no one who from the womb isn't crooked. There is no one who isn't born a sinner. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul and uh, Solomon adds in Proverbs 11.20, the perverse in heart are an abomination to the Lord. And what that means is that if you are a sinner, which we all are by nature, and if you remain in unbelief, and if you remain with an unrepentant heart, and you remain not entrusting all that you are, all that you have, all that you ever will be to the Lord, thorns and snares are in your way, and there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing in and of yourself that you can do to get out of thorns. Thorns in Scripture often represent evil. In Ezekiel 28, God judges Israel's enemies and says they will no longer be a prickling briar or a painful thorn. And In Hosea 10, verse 8, the tables are turned. God's talking about Israel. And He says, they will be judged for their sin. And and Hosea says, thorn and thistle will grow on their altars. Jesus in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount says, Beware the false prophets, you know them by their fruits. After all, grapes, good fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes. And of course, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, is afflicted by what? A thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan sent to torment him. Thorns often represent evil. Snares are that which the devil and demons trap us in sin. Sin is called a snare. Specific sins are called snares in the Scripture. And the perverse, the crooked in heart, Thorns and snares are in their way. But verse 5 says, He who guards himself will be far from them. Far from the thorns and snares. Meaning that you don't walk as close as you can to sin without sinning. You don't, it's not like trying to get as close as you can to trouble without getting in trouble. No, you guard yourself against sin. You guard yourself against evil, against traps, against falling into temptation. It's not wise for an alcoholic to have beer in the house. It's not wise for someone who's quit smoking to have tobacco products in the house. That's not guarding yourself, is it? And so the the, the precept applies. If you're trying to guard yourself... You stay as far away from the things that you will fall into temptation with as you can. You stay as far away from sin as you possibly can. You don't dance with it. You avoid it. Or it will entrap you like a snare and it will keep you from following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact of the matter is, you can't do this. You don't have the ability to do this. I don't have the ability to do this. We don't have the means. We have no power to not do evil on our own. We have no power in and of ourselves to avoid this. And that doesn't mean that we're always as evil as we could be. But it does mean there is no part of us where the thorns and the snares don't draw blood. There's no part of us where the thorns haven't left their mark. There's no part of you that isn't tainted by sin. And that leaves us helpless. It leaves me helpless. It leaves you helpless. It leaves us bleeding out. 
Because the bottom line is, we're sinners. We're going to get caught up in the thorn bushes of sin. We're going to get caught up in the thorn bushes of insufficient views of God, insufficient views of Christ, the Word of God. So you can't guard yourself so that thorns and snares will be far from you unless God acts on your behalf. Being spiritually dead, we don't make ourselves alive. Lazarus didn't make himself alive to come out of that tomb. Jesus is the one who acted and said, Lazarus, come forth. And we don't make ourselves alive so as to comprehend our own helplessness. We don't make ourselves alive so as to uh, make ourselves repent and believe in the gospel. What the Bible says in Ephesians 2.5 is that God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love that He has for those whom He saves... He makes us alive together with Christ so that we look upon Christ and we do begin to comprehend then the depths of our depravity. We look upon Jesus not as a ticket out of hell and not as a ticket to heaven, but in true desperation. And we do repent of our sins and we do entrust ourselves to Him. Once God acts, we are able to seek Him. Romans 3 says there is none who seek God, but once God acts, we can seek Him. And that seeking reflects itself not in tedious law-keeping, but in humility and faithfulness to His Word. That's how he who guards himself will be far from thorns and snares, and no other way. So what does this have to do with family? Well, verse 6 in the New American Standard says this, and, and most English translations are similar. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And that's probably a familiar verse to most of us. Um, the way it's commonly understood goes something like this, and sometimes it varies a little bit, but... Teach and show your child the Lord. Teach and show your child Jesus. And when they grow up, they won't depart from the Lord. And, and rightly so, we don't view that as a universal truth. Just because you are a great Christian father, you're a great Christian mother, doesn't necessarily mean your son or daughter whom you love will grow up to be a great Christian or a Christian at all. It, that's not a promise of a universal truth. And we don't understand it that way. Not all children of believers end up believing. But the thought is that they will be much more likely to believe in Jesus if the parents believe in Jesus and if the parents show them the Lord. If the parents are disciples, they'll much more likely be disciples. And that is true. It's really hard to deny that's the case. <clears throat> it doesn't always work out that way. But generally speaking, it's right. I just don't believe it's what verse 6 is really saying. Especially since children don't start with the Lord to begin with. And it's hard for me to say this. It's a little bit harder when they're babies than now. But uh, my children are sinners. Children start off as sinners. Caleb started off as a sinner. Adelaide is a sinner. 
And that's why I made a point about most English translations, because I want to challenge the way we think about this verse. My thinking has been challenged over the past couple of years on this, as I've read some things on it, I've studied the Hebrew on this, and forgive me for bringing a little bit about of that out this morning, but the phrase, he should go, is not part of the original Hebrew of Proverbs 22, verse 6. It appears that it showed up for the first time in the King James Bible in 1611. And the King James Bible is by far the most influential English translation there ever has been or probably ever will be. And it's so influential that it has influenced other languages like French. There's French translations that are based on the King James And they have adopted this he-should-go phraseology in verse 6. But just 12 years before the King James was written, the Geneva Bible of 1599 did not translate the verse that way. It said, teach a child in the trade of his way, and when he is old, he shall not depart from it. The point I want to make is this. The tone of the King James that we're used to which the New American Standard follows that, is, is one of re- positive reinforcement of what is true. If you positively reinforce what is true and what is right and what is of God, then there's a good chance your son or daughter will follow in that way, will not depart from it. And, and generally speaking, that is the case, but that's just the tone of what the Hebrews saying that the, the, that the Geneva Bible, I believe, is more faithful to here and it's more faithful really to the general tone of the book of Proverbs, is the way this should be translated is bring up a child in his own way, and even when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. It's not a promise, but it's a warning. for father, It's a warning for fathers, it's a warning for mothers not to allow their children to follow their own way. I was uh, looking at, uh, I guess it was Facebook last night. One of my friends posted a picture of a child sitting in front of a refrigerator, almost naked, covered in some sort of pudding. And the thing said, this is what happens when it gets too quiet. If you're a parent, you know exactly what's being said there. Your children are sinners who will sin. And when it's too quiet, that means they're off doing their own thing, and their own thing is going to usually lead to trouble. I know that as a father, and you know that too. And so what this verse is saying is, that's what they need to depart. Don't let them walk in their own way. Don't let them think they're okay. And that goes completely against the, the, the worldview today. In, in Western culture, uh, particularly in Americanized culture, the way of the world is to foster the path of individual expression. I'm okay. You're okay. Let your kids be who they are. Let your kids be whatever they identify as. Let your kids just do, just, just be who they are. Well, beloved, that quite frankly, goes completely against what the Bible says about parenting. And that, that kind of thinking has produced multiple generations of growing ungodliness in our nation, in our schools, in our churches, 
in our homes, high divorce rates, the legal and condoned murder of unborn children, the rampant abuse of legal and illegal drugs, including alcohol, and in churches, a growing tendency, and and this is wrong, a growing tendency that it's the the church's job to entertain children, it's the church's job to make church fun and, and let kids be who they are, while at the same time, making sure they grow up and follow Christ as if they're here 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But contrary to all of that, fathers and mothers are, according to Scripture, to be intricately involved in every aspect of their children's lives and most importantly, their souls. When we see our children... I'm using myself as an example too much in this sermon, and for that I apologize. But my carport, if you sit on the bricks and you lean one way too far, it's going to hurt a whole lot on the way down. And so I'm very particular about my little ones sitting on the bricks in the carport. If they're sitting up there, I say, get down, you know the rules. Why? Because I don't want them to die. Because that's what could happen. The point being, when we see our children even beginning to veer down a path that will lead them into thorns and snares, beloved, we can't afford to be idle spectators hoping for the best. But we need to be building walls with big signs that say, Danger, danger, I love you. I know what's best for you. I don't want what you want for you. I want what is best for you. Don't do this. And then we need to show them why. And we need to show them the right way. We can't lead our children to the one who will guard them if we aren't at the same time making sure they don't start off on their own way. So that they... When they grow old, they won't depart from it their own way. There is a way that seems right to a man in another proverb, but the end of that way is death. And statistics are not perfect indicators of reality, and they definitely aren't perfect predictors of what will happen in the future. But beloved, the statistics of people being saved and what age they're saved are absolutely staggering. Most people come to faith relatively young. Not many come to Christ well into their adult years. The norm for people coming to Christ is usually young. And what does that tell us? It tells us as parents and grandparents that we cannot be passive about making disciples in our own homes. We can't be content just to bring them to church take them home, let them do their own thing, and hope that over the course of time, that repetition is going to be enough. Because guess what? In most cases, it's not. Which is why when people get out of high school, they rarely come back to church. The norm for people is to get saved young. I was saved young. Not everybody is, but I was. And so we can't let our kids go their own way because then they may never trust in the one who is the way and the truth and the life. We cannot pass the torch 
to a new generation of disciples if they aren't there in the first place to have their torch lit. And so fathers and mothers need to do all they can. We need to do all we can by the grace of God to see to it our children understand the importance of being there to receive the flame. To carry the torch even to another generation coming after them. We need to be doing all we can, church, to help fathers and mothers guard their children from thorns and snares. You need to be doing all you can to help dads and moms teach their children the Word of God and show them the Savior. We cannot be passive about this. The best defense is a good offense. We can't be passive about this. We can't just give lip service to loving children, but at the same time, just stay out of trouble, stay out of the way. That's not real love for children, and that's not real love for parents either for that matter. And it's not making disciples. It's not passing the torch. That's muffing out flames, and sooner or later there'll be no sign there was ever a torch burning to begin with. If that's how we conduct ourselves. So will you pass the torch? Are you preparing yourself to pass the torch? Or are you standing there holding your own and while it fizzles out, the ones who are supposed to come behind us and carry on will instead go their own way? We've got to invest our lives not in a desire that people come, but into the people themselves. And particularly the next generation. And particularly... For fathers and mothers, we must do all we can, beloved, to make sure our children do not go their own way under the guise of just being whoever they are. Who they are is sinners. Who they need is Jesus. And thorns and snares are in their way. And rather than let them get caught up in that and stay caught up in that, we've got to show them how to guard themselves, which means we've got to show them the one who guards them. We must want to be like Jesus. We must want to live like Jesus so our children will want to also. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will move among us and in in particular among the so many young families in our community who are devoid of Christ. In our culture, the great importance of biblical fatherhood has been minimized at the expense of a misguided feminism that vastly overemphasizes individualism. And at the same time, Father... What you say mothers should be has been redefined by a culture that says what you want isn't good enough. Which is basically the same sin Adam and Eve fell into. A a dissatisfaction with what you've called good. And so forgive us, Father, where we have failed. And in Bethlehem Baptist Church, help us to treasure what you have called us to be as fathers and mothers and grandfathers, and grandmothers, and sons, and daughters. Help us, Father, to love our community enough to tell them the truth about what's best, 
And that's what you say. Help us, Father, love our children enough not to let them go their own way, but to show them the one who is the way and show them how they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus Christ. And help us, Father, guard us against a misguided love for our children that idolizes them at the expense of the glory of Christ. May we, by your grace, be those who exalt your Son, make disciples, and pass the torch. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, whom you sent to save us from our sins and provide for us eternal life through his resurrection. Amen.